Are we recording right now? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> fun. Okay. This voice is Hannah. And this voice is Marissa. Also, would probably am, is, are turned on by it. Hearts Lohowski? Yeah. Of course. Doesn't actually no. make a ton of sense. No. What are you doing? Are you talking to yourself? <gasps> oh my god, I already hate this story. You know what? I'm okay with that. Because I just thought you could like bleed suddenly yeah. at any given moment. <laughs> my erotic fan fiction isn't fucking interesting enough for you. Hello, you're listening to Tell Us More Podcast. Ready to rumble. Let's get ready to rumble. <laughs> we always end up singing on this podcast. You've literally said that sentence before on I this am. podcast. Because <laughs> I almost responded to the same thing I did before. Yeah, which was what? Uh, yeah, but it's good. Or yeah, but you're good or something. Oh, yeah, but you're actually good at singing. I think was what and how you said it. Okay. One up me then, bitch. <laughs> I did a better impression of you than you. What? Um, Alright, that feels forced. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> People want genuine interactions here. That was a little too campy. I hate campy. Did I use that word right? Yeah, well, yeah. Campy is like the Batman movies. Like that, um, like with uh, Michael Keaton. Like Batman Returns and stuff. They're always described as campy. I'm gonna just look up the definition. Definition. It's like corny. Jeez. Like Poison Ivy and Iceman and all that shit. Or like Freezer Burn or whatever. Now is it, can, is campy an insult or is that an intentional genre? Well, with the Batman movies it was intentional. But some shit just ends up being campy. Being so, <laughs> kinda, being so, not right now though, no, being so extreme, <laughs> being so extreme, that it has an amusing and sometimes perversely sophisticated appeal, over the top and farcical, intentionally exaggerated, so as not to be taken seriously, found primarily in television, theater, and motion pictures, camp endeavors for satire, and for those who fully understand and appreciate the risible nature of its material, it's not surprising when it develops a cult following. Both Little Shop of Horrors and Rocky Horror Picture Show are movies that are widely considered very campy. Yep. Also, Batman. <laughs> By Tim... The Tim Burton Batman movies. Whoa! Tim Burton made Batman movies? Yes, with Michael Keaton and, like, Nicole Kidman as Poison Ivy, and, like, Drew Barrymore was the one that, uh... Cat Lady? <laughs> no. Uh, oh, Michelle Pfeiffer was Cat Lady. Ooh. Meow. <laughs> um, was she Daisy in Greece? No, that's Sandra. Wait, Daisy? Who the fuck is Daisy? <laughs> I created a new character. Sandra D? Yeah. No, that's um, Olivia Newton John. Oh. Uh, Not even Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But okay. No, All I like right. it. Sometimes we get bonus content just from our curiosity. Season 2, episode 18, almost at 20. Uh, Hannah, what do you got? <laughs> I'm going to talk about Amelia Mary Earnhardt. The flight of the pilot? The flight of the pilot? <laughs> yeah. You said Earnhardt? No, Earhart. Oh, okay. That's Amelia Mary Earhart. Yeah, I was like, I thought I was saying Earhart wrong for the us entire time. This enjoy it time. Oh, you tell me that Broad's last name is Earhart. <laughs> Oi! <laughs> Oi! Uh, Amelia Mary Earhart, Earhart. was born on. Do you think that's her real name? <laughs> because she flies planes, which means she's in the air. 
Did that no. just work out perfectly? It's spelled E-A-R. Still. Okay, sure. From what I've nice discovered, <laughs> that is her real name. <laughs> she was born. I wrote, Amelia Earhart was boring <laughs> oh. on July 24th. She was just happy to be boring I that day. I definitely meant born. July 24th, 19... Nope, July 24th, 18. I mean, the day you're born is the most boring day of your life. I feel like that was my peak. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to come up with, like, a, a quote that a woman would say. Like an oh, the day you're born with oh, your long cigarette. <laughs> I've got... Imagine me with a long cigarette and I'm a starlet in my... my in your 40s? <laughs> no, I'm in my 50, I'm in my early 50s. I'm well, I'm like 49. So like 80s? And I, I try to have an inspirational quote because my life has been so interesting that here's my quote. Honey, the most boring day of your life is the day we're born. I Meaning life is going to get so much more exciting. That's my inspirational. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We've made it through the first sentence. Oh. <laughs> um she was born in Atchison, Kansas. Atchison. Or then we're at this. And then I and then I wrote pause for Marissa to make a comment about <laughs> most popular girls in school. You know me. And then I wrote pause. Amelia's grandfather was a formal federal judge, president of the Atchison Savings Bank, and a leading citizen in the town. From an early age, Amelia was the ringleader, while her sister Grace acted as the dutiful follower. Their upbringing was unconventional due to their mother not believing in molding her children into nice little girls. Quote. Mm. I like that. A spirit of adventure seems to abide in the Earhart children, as the pair set off daily to explore their neighborhood. As a child, Earhart spent long hours playing with her sister, climbing trees, hunting rats with a rifle, and belly slamming her sled down the hill. The girls kept worms, moths, toads, and katydids in a growing collection gathering gathered in their outings. In 1904, with the help of her uncle, she created a ramp fashioned after a roller coaster that she had seen on a trip to St. Louis and secured the ramp to the roof of the family tool shed. Earhart's first flight ended dramatically when she emerged from the broken wooden box that had served as a sled with a bruised lip, torn dress, and a sensation of exhilaration. She exclaimed to her sister, It's just like flying. What? Did she really? Uh-huh. Are we sure? No, it kinda just said seems that in convenient. this article. <laughs> kind of seems convenient. I don't know if she actually said that. I'm debunking well, that. To be fair, she did go down a, basically a ramp from the top of the tool shed up into the air in a wooden box. So, it's kind of like, like flying. It's kind of like when a mom tweets, my son just said the most, most beautiful thing. Mommy, Jesus. Loves the gays, right? <laughs> I don't know why questioning Amelia Earhart's exclamation and comparing her to a lying suburban mother. Because <laughs> people say that you say stuff and you didn't even say it. Well, she's dead. Spoiler oh. alert, so we don't know. <laughs> uh, at age nine, a new job for her father led the family... <laughs> <laughs> Gotta keep going. <laughs> These are long. Uh, age nine. New job for her father. Led the family to a move to Des Moines, Iowa. At the Iowa State Fair the next year, Earhart saw her first actual aircraft. Her father tried. Her father tried to interest her and her sister into taking a flight. One look at the Ricket Fliver and Earhart promptly asked to return to the merry-go-round. Uh, she later described. Are you Amelia Earhart? No. I would like to return to the merry-go-round. I would like to return. 
Uh, she later described the biplane as a thing of rusty wire and wood and not at all interesting. <laughs> That's it. So it's you. I love her. Uh, Amelia and her sister remained with their grandparents in Atchison while her parents moved out to the small quarters in Iowa. During this time, Earhart received a form of homeschooling. She later recalled that she was exceedingly fond of reading and spent countless hours in the family library. In 1909, the family finally reunited in Des Moines when the Earhart children were enrolled in public school for the first time, and she enrolled in seventh grade at the age of 12. Although the family's finances seemed to improve with the acquisition of a new house and the hiring of two staff members... Uh, that would make your finances improve? It, they appeared to improve because um, they got a new house and they got staff uh, in Iowa. <laughs> I had to lay my staff off. Right. Uh, in my shitty duplex, which is the equivalent of <laughs> Iowa. Your duplex is better than Iowa. It smells like dog shit in Iowa. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to say that my duplex smells like dog shit, and that's part of what makes it better than Iowa, because <laughs> I was that bad. No. But that would be funny. Valid. It soon became apparent that Earhart's father, Edwin, was an alcoholic. In 1914, he was forced to retire and attempted to rehabilit rehabilitate himself through treatment but was never reinstated to his former job at the railroad. Around the same time, Amelia's grandmother, Amelia Otis, died, leaving a substantial estate that placed her daughter's share in a trust, fearing that Edwin's drinking would drain the funds. Smart lady. Her grandmother's house was, an, was auctioned off along with all of its contents, which Amelia later recalled as heartbreaking and marked the end of her childhood. In 1915, Earhart's father found work as a clerk at the Great Northern Wheel Railway in St. Paul, Minnesota. Oh, what's <laughs> up? Ryan? Does, so they move here? Yeah. Sweet. Amelia attended What? <laughs> Fucking A, dude. Seriously, Amelia Earhart lived in St. Paul, Minnesota? Yeah, she attended Central High School. What? What year? 1915 is what I just said. Oh. <laughs> dude, she lived in St. Paul, Minnesota? Yeah. Homestay homie. Right? Okay. I, I didn't even realize she was... I literally just have been trying to do Amelia Earhart for a long time, and she's so like, there's the lot. That oh, I have damn. been putting it off because it's like actual research, research, and I don't want to. I don't want to do her dirty. So let's keep. Going. As I was going, I was like, "Fuck yes, loves it." Because we had Atchison, and now we have fucking St. Paul. Yeah. Minneapolis would be better, but whatever. Right, obviously, but we we will take what we can get. They were only here for a little while. Evan applied to a transfer to a Missouri railway station, but the person who was leaving his job reconsidered, and Edwin couldn't get back his previous job at the St. Paul railway station. I can't say railway. Amy, Amelia's mother, took her children to Chicago where they lived with friends. Amelia chose to canvas local high schools in search of the best science program. She eventually enrolled in Hyde Park High School but spent a miserable semester there when a yearbook caption quoted the essence of her unhappiness. Oh, that's maybe me a little. So it literally, this is the like caption under the picture of her. A.E. The girl in brown who walks alone. Oh, <laughs> so man. Yikes. Right. <laughs> I actually have quite the following, though, so it's not me. The girl in brown who walks alone. Uh, Amelia later graduated in 1916. Throughout her troubled, troubled childhood, she continued to aspire to greatness. She kept a scrapbook with newspaper clippings about successful women in predominantly male-oriented fields, including yes. film direction and production, law, advertising, and mechanical engineering. During Christmas vacation in 1917, Amelia visited her sister in Toronto. World War I had been raging, and Earhart saw the returning wounded soldiers. After receiving training as a nurse's aide from the Red Cross, she began working with the Voluntary Aid Detachment at the Spadina Military Hospital. 
1918, the Spanish flu reached Toronto, and Earhart became a patient herself. She was hospitalized with pneumonia and maxillary sinusitis, so she had a sinus infection, <laughs> just like I get all the time. Yes. Uh, her illness lasted almost a year, which she spent with her sister reading poetry, learning to play the banjo, and studying mechanics. I've always wanted to learn how to play the banjo. And casually study mechanics? Yes, well, that would be helpful since my car right? breaks down a lot. Right? Around the same time, Amelia and her friend, they visited an air fair held in Toronto. The highlight of the day was an exhibition put on by a World War I ace, which I was like, the fuck is that? Historically, a flying ace was defined as a military aviator credited with shooting down five or more enemy aircraft during aerial combat. Shit. Excuse me. Anyway, so he was putting on a show. The pilot overhead spotted Amelia and her friend who were watching from an isolated clearing. The pilot dived at them. Amelia said of the experience, I am so sure, he said to himself, watch me make them scamper. Uh, Amelia stood her ground as the aircraft came close by. Amelia said later, I didn't understand at the time, but I believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. In Long Beach, California in 1920, Earhart and her father visited an airfield, airfield where Frank Hawks, who would later gain fame as an air racer, gave Amelia a ride that would forever change her life. By the time I had got two or three hundred feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. After that 10-minute flight, which at the time cost her father $10, she immediately was determined to learn how to fly. While working a variety of steady jobs as a photographer, a truck driver, and a stenographer at the local telephone company, she managed to save up $1,000 for flying lessons. Her first lesson was on January 3rd, 1921, and her teacher was Anita Nita Snook, a pioneer female aviator. Yeah, I love a name. Right? Uh, I like that her name is Anita, but she goes by Nita. Just Nita. Take, take the A off. Anita. Nita. Call me Nita. I Call picture Nita. her as a very badass lady. Call me Nita. Call me. I'm going to teach you how to fly this fucking plane. Oi! Oi! <laughs> Call me Nita. Call me Nita. I'm going to teach you how to fly this fucking plane. Oh, also, this is Go in, Chelsea! This is in Canada. <laughs> so oh. casual. Um, <laughs> it's fine. We have a cockney person in Canada. I'm here for it. Oi! Oi! Where's your maple syrup? <laughs> I want some. <laughs> Earhart's commitment to flying re- <laughs> Earhart's commitment to flying required her to accept the frequent hard work that accompanied early aviation tri- tra- training. She chose to wear a leather jacket, but was aware of the other that the other aviators would be judging her, so she slept in her jacket for three nights to give the jacket a worn look. So this bitch bought a new one and then was like, I know they're all going to judge me, so I'm going to make this. They're going to judge her for not having a... For being like, oh, you're fancy leather jacket. To complete her image transformation, she cropped her hair short in the style of other female flyers. Six months later, Earhart purchased a secondhand bright yellow Kinner Aster biplane that she nicknamed the Canary. On October 22nd, 1922, she flew the Canary to an altitude of 14,000 feet, setting a world record for female pilots. On May 15th, 1923, Earhart became the 16th woman in the United States to be issued a pilot's license. Throughout the 1920s, Earhart's inheritance from her grandmother steadily diminished until it was gone. Amelia sold the canary and purchased a Kissel Speedster two-passenger automobile, with which she then went on a meandering road trip across the U.S. with her mother. The pair ended up in Boston. Amelia returned to Columbia University for several months, but was forced to abandon her studies and any further plans of enrolling at MIT, which was just casually noted. Like, oh, she was going to go to MIT. Just so you know, I'm just going to slide this in. Yeah. That's what people say when they have sex with me. Just so you know, I'm going to slide this in. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> Good. Just Great. So you know. Thanks for the update. Thank you. <laughs> oh, because they could no longer afford the tuition and fees. Soon after, she found employment as a teacher, then a social worker. 
While living in Massachusetts, she maintained her interest in aviation by becoming a member of the American Aeronautical Society's Boston chapter and was eventually elected vice president. Along with acting as a sales rep for Kinder Aircraft in the Boston area, she also wrote local newspaper columns promoting flying, and as her local celebrity grew, she laid out plans for an organization devoted to female flyers. After Charles Lindbergh's solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927, Amy Guest expressed interest in being the first woman to fly or be flown across the Atlantic Ocean. After deciding that the trip was too perilous for her to take, she offered to sponsor the project, suggesting they find another girl with the right image. What? I love that she was like, I'm going to do this. Ooh, it's dangerous, but I'll pay for someone else to do it. Ooh. Uh, while at work one afternoon in April 1928, Earhart got a phone call from Captain Hilton H. Rayleigh, who asked her if she'd like to fly the Atlantic. The project coordinators interviewed Earhart and asked her to accompany Wilmer Stultz and co-pilot mechanic Luis Gourand on the flight, nominally as a passenger, but with the added duty of keeping the flight log. So they were like, you also get to do oh, this. Yay. with me, but here's a test. You have your pilot's license, but here you go. Here's a journal. Um, here's a journal. <laughs> <laughs> the team departed from Newfoundland on June 17th, 1928, landing in Burryport, South Wales, exactly 20 hours and 40 minutes later. When interviewed after f- landing, Earhart said, Stoltz did all the flying. I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> she then added later, dot, 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 maybe someday I'll try it alone. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Trading in on her physical appearance to Lindbergh, whom the press had dubbed Lucky Lindy, Magazines and newspapers starting to referring to Amelia as Lady Lindy. The United Press, however, which I think is like either Canada or Europe, I'm not really sure, but they gave her a better nickname, calling Amelia the reigning queen of the air. Yes. Upon returning to the United States, Earhart undertook an exhausting lecture tour in 1928 and 29. Meanwhile, Putnam, one of the original project coordinators, began heavily promoting a book that Amelia had authored, a series of new lecture tours, and using her pictures in mass market endorsements for products including luggage, Lucky Strike Cigarettes, which later caused image problems for her, and she didn't basically like promoting Lucky Strike Cigarettes. Well, she shouldn't. So she later donated the $1,500 she made from the deal to Commander Richard Byrd's South Pole Expedition. So she took money that she made from this campaign that she didn't actually want to be a part of and donated oh, it to another pilot. Okay, so we're trying to get some integrity back. Right, yeah. So, and I'm not sure, I couldn't really tell if it was Putnam that arranged these, like, endorsements, or if it was Amelia being like, yes, it's cool, okay. Um, the doll did an episode on it. Oh, really? Yeah, I can't remember. It was more so about how there were two men doing it at the same time, and one of them actually got there before the other, but the other one told everybody that it was him. To the South Pole? Yep. Oh, interesting. Shout out to the doll up there, our biggest fans. Little known podcast. Little known podcast. Oh, as well as women's clothing and sportswear, the marketing campaigns added to Earhart's mystique with the public. Rather than simply endorsing products, Earhart was often actively involved in the promotions, especially in women's fashions. For a number of years, she had sewn her own clothing, but the active living lines that were sold in stores like Macy's were an expression of a new Earhart image. Her concept of simple, natural lines matched with wrinkle-proof material was the embodiment of sleek, purposeful, and feminine. So she just casually was like, I'm going to have a clothing line. Yeah, well, as one does. Exactly. Celebrity endorsements helped Earhart finance her flying. Accepting a position as an associate editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine. What? She turned this forum. I didn't know that. I know. She turned this forum into a campaign for greater public acceptance of aviation, especially focusing on the role of women entering the field. In 1929, Earhart was among the first aviators to promote commercial air travel through the development of a passenger airline service, 
along with Charles Lindbergh. She was vice president of National Airways, which conducted the flying operations of the Boston Maine Airways and several other airlines in the Northeast. By 1940, it had become Northeast Airlines. In August 1928, Amelia set off on her first long solo flight. By making this trip, she became the first woman to fly solo across the North American continent and back. Earhart then made her first attempt at competitive air racing in 1929 during the first Santa Monica to Cleveland Women's Air Derby. During the race, she settled in fourth place. In 1930, Earhart became an official with the National Aeronautic Association where she actively promoted the establishment of separate women's records and was essential in the Federation Aeronautique Internationale. There's like a shitload of accents. I don't, I think it's French, not sure. So basically she was like, she became an official with the National Aeronautic Association and said that women should have their own records category and then was also essential in the international one, accepting okay. those similar standards. During this time, Earhart became involved in the 99s, an organization of female pilots providing moral support and advancing the cause of women in aviation. So basically just like a Just like a lady. girl gang. Yeah, just like a cash. Also, they were called the 99s. Like Pussy pilots. Pussy pilots. Uh, uh, yep. Okay. Anything else? <laughs> Vaginal Davis. Vaginal Davis! Please welcome to the stage, Pussy Pilot. Pussy Pilot. Um, Vaginal Davis and the Pussy Pilots. Oh my god, I would totally watch that. Mm-hmm. In 1928, uh, Air- <laughs> Vaginal Davis and the Pussy Pilots. <laughs> The new Josie and the Pussycat. In 1928, Earhart broke off an engagement to a chemical engineer from Boston, and during the same period of time, she and George Putnam had been spending a lot of time together. Wait, the South Pole guy? No. Okay. Earhart broke up. Oh, no. Putnam's the one that was, like, on the original flight that she was, she went on with the other guy who flew the whole thing. Oh, and then he was, she like, got- organizing it all for her, and then he's the one that also started promoting all of her shit and, like, basically became, like, her manager. Okay, and then they And then they were casually other? spending a lot of time together. And in 1929, after proposing six times, Amelia finally agreed to marry him. <laughs> he proposed six now times. Yeah, I would like. I love that. Earhart referred to her marriage as a partnership with dual control. Earhart's ideas on marriage were liberal for the time as she believed in equal responsibilities for both breadwinners and pointedly kept her own name rather than being referred to as Miss Putnam. Fuck yes. Yeah. Which, I don't think I included in here, but there was an article that, I think it was the New York Times that did an article on her, and it was, like, in their company guidelines that they had to refer to her as Miss Putnam. George said, well, then you have to refer to me as Mr. Earhart. I love that. Yeah. So, I love a woke man! Yeah, he was like, alright, well, fuck you guys. I'm, I'm Mr. Earhart now. Okay, so transatlantic solo flight in 1932. Is this the one? Is this where the big event comes in? The big event. What we've all been waiting for. Yes. On the morning, but like, what about all that shit that we didn't even know about? She wrote for Cosmo. She like had her own clothing line. She was like the vice president of some like national aeronautics society. Like, what the fuck? People are just trying to focus on your failures. Right? Lame. Fuck them. Um, on the morning of May 20th, 1932, Amelia set off from Harbor Grace, Newfoundland with a copy of the Telegraph Journal to confirm the date of her flight. She intended to fly to Paris to emulate Lindbergh's solar flight five years earlier. After 14 hours and 56 minutes, Earhart landed in a pasture in Colmore, Northern Ireland, and the farmhand asked her, have you flown far? And she responded, from America. <laughs> yeah. First of all, not like this Irish lady knew, so kind of a rude response. No, but I love it. I mean, she just said, from America. That's true. I'm sure she didn't go, from America. Like, I just... <laughs> you didn't so stupid. I'm from America. Oh my God, you're so stupid. I just came from America. 
Uh, my dad just texted me. Thanks for emptying the dishwasher. <laughs> You're welcome. You know, I bet there's no greater pleasure for a homeowner than when they go to their dishwasher and they see that it has already been unloaded. I wouldn't know. But simple pleasures. I'm happy to abolish. I used a bunch of the dishes. I also tried emptying it earlier when it hadn't been run, and then I had to go put it all back. Gross! I know. I was like, oh, fuck, this is all dirty. Anyway, so she does that. So that was the... F she flew solo nonstop across the Atlantic. So she flew from Newfoundland to Ireland. As the first woman to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic, Earhart received the Distinguished Flying Cross from Congress, the Cross of Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government, and the Gold Medal of the National Geographic Society from President Herbert... Hoover. As her fame grew, she developed friendships with many people in high offices, most notably First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Didn't I talk about Eleanor Roosevelt on with Bates? Eisenhower. I talked about. Oh, maybe that's. What, I was like, I talked about one Not of the First thinking Ladies. Thinking of Eisenhower. Who's this? Who's um, that? Ooh, that's <laughs> sage old man. Oh, okay. No, my love. No, You're my love. Talking about Eisenhower. I have a mustache. That voice creeps me out. I don't like it. I mean, I like it, but I don't. It gives me. I think he's gonna tell me to go on a quest. I'm the uncle you can't quite get a read on. I'm just a very smart professor. He's gonna tell me to go on a quest, and I don't wanna go. So she's friends with First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Roosevelt shared many of Earhart's interests and passions, especially women's causes. After flying with Earhart, Roosevelt obtained a student permit, but did not actually further pursue her plans to learn to fly. The two friends communicated frequently throughout their lives, and another famous flyer. Jacqueline Cochran, who was considered to be Earhart's greatest rival by both media and the public, also actually became a confidant and friend during this period. So they were pitted against each other, and the, the two of them were like, fuck you both. Was there a lot of gossip in the aviation community back then or something? Was that like a big thing people focused on? Yeah, people were flying in the air. That was like a big deal. It was like celebrities, but flying. I don't know. Like daredevils and shit were happening. Yeah, how does one get paid for that? You just let people watch you? Sponsor you? Why would somebody... What? I have a plane. Give me money so I can fly it. Okay. Why? Again, she's from <laughs> Kansas. <laughs> she doesn't sound like that. Um, I don't know. I don't know the intentions of the people of 1932. Alright. The war's it's not over. like they're going like, to get any return. Just, like, excited. Not an investment. Yeah, the ROI is really, it's not great. <laughs> so she and Jacqueline are buddies, even though they're rivals in the media. Well, social media didn't exist, so you just had to not walk past newsstands. Yeah, or just, yeah, okay. On hey, who needs a paper? <laughs> extra, extra, read all about it. The woman's gossip column. And nickel. But that was it. <laughs> the women's gossip column. <laughs> Yeah, the latest from Cosmopolitan. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that was a... Magazines were a thing. Yeah. Anyway. They probably didn't talk about pussy. January 11th, 1935. Earhart becomes the first aviator to fly solo from Honolulu, Hawaii to Oakland, California. Uh, that year, once more flying her Lockheed Vega airliner, Earhart had tagged old Bessie the fire horse. <laughs> she flew solo from Los Angeles to Mexico City on April 19th. The next record attempt was a non-stop flight from Mexico City to New York. Setting off on May 8th, her flight was uneventful, although the large crowds that greeted her at Newark, New Jersey, were a concern because she had to be careful not to taxi into the throng. <laughs> there were so many people there, she had to be sure not to hit them with her plane. Her plane. 
As always, when you're flying a plane, you should try not to hit people. Yep. Uh, 1936. Now we're at the big one. Began planning a round-the-world flight. Although others had flown around the world, hers would be the longest at 29,000 miles because it roughly followed the equator. With financing from Purdue in July 1936, a Lockheed Electra was built at Lockheed Aircraft Company to her specifications, which included extensive modifications to the fuselage to incorporate many additional fuel tanks. Earhart dubbed the twin-engine monoplane her flying laboratory. So, how long was this going to take? How long was what? The podcast? No. <laughs> no. Her trip around the world oh. in hours. So, 29,000 miles. Do we know how long that would take her? No though? idea. Because I would just, I guess my question is, is she going to land at all and take pit yeah, stops? Yeah, she does okay. land. and Yeah, so that's the thing. So, I, I was thinking that, too. I was like, how the fuck do you do that? Um, no. On March 17, 1937, Earhart and her crew flew the first leg from Oakland to Honolulu. Due to issues with her plane, <laughs> um, the aircraft needed servicing in Hawaii. The flight resumed three days later. During the takeoff run, there was an uncontrolled ground loop, and the forward landing gear collapsed. Both propellers hit the ground, and the plane skidded on its belly, and Whoa. a portion of the runway was damaged. So this was the f- that was her first attempt at doing this flight. Did she just so. give up after this? No, because remember how Amelia Earhart... No, I wasn't sure if this was her. She tried to start it, and then she put it off. Oh, no. That was just the first attempt. So that was March 17th, 1937, and then June 1st. That was my question. Okay, yeah. So June, we're back. We're The second attempt begins with a flight from Oakland to Miami. On the second flight, Fred Noonan was Earhart's only crew member... The pair departed Miami on June 1st, and after stops in South Africa, Africa, Southeast Asia, the flight arrived in Leh, New Guinea on June 29th, 1937. So they left on June 1st and arrived in New Guinea on June 29th. So we're already 28 days in. So can you just land there? Did they have to make a call? (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty (laughs) sure each of their stops were like pre-planned ahead. Oh, like, that's true. I'm, that's... Probably got proper from licensing. From what happens later, that's... They're, like, planned to do these. So, uh, at this point, about 22,000 miles of the journey had been completed. That's how long it, it takes 28 days to do 22,000 miles of the 29,000, if that gives you a rough estimate of how long this shit takes. The remaining 7,000 would be over the Pacific. Hmm. On July 2nd, at midnight, Earhart and Noonan took off from Leigh Airfield. Their intended destination was Howland Island, a sliver of land about 6,500 feet long and 1,600 feet wide. At about 3 p.m. Leigh time, Earhart reported her altitude as 10,000 feet, but that they would reduce altitude due to thick clouds. Around 5 p.m., Earhart reported her altitude at 7,000 feet, I didn't include that, and the speed at 150 knots. Her last known position report was near the Nupumanu Islands, about 800 miles into the flight. So 800 miles into this, like, second leg. The USCGC Itasca, which I then put a comma and wrote, a boat. So the Itasca is a boat was supposed to communicate with Earhart and guide them to the island once they were in the vicinity. Through a series of misunderstandings or errors, the final approach wasn't successful. The Electra expected Itasca... This, also, I had to read through so much, like, radio signals shit, and I didn't understand half of it, so this is, like, a very peeled-down version okay. of what happened. Because cool. I was like, I, I, I don't know what's going on. 
how can I explain it? So the Electra expected Itasca to transmit signals to the Electra, and then they would use an RDF beacon to find the Itasca. So Electra wants yeah. them to be like, where are you? Give us directions, and then they'll use an RDF beacon to find the boat. In theory, the plane could listen for the signal while rotating its loop antenna. A sharp minimum indicates the direction of the RDF beacon. The Electra's RDF equipment had failed due to a blown fuse in an earlier leg flying to Darwin. The fuse was replaced. Near Howland, Earhart could hear the transmission from Itasca on the 750 kilohertz feed, but she was unable to determine a minimum, so she could not determine a direction to Itasca. So basically, there's just wires crossed everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like... So during Earhart and Noonan's approach to Howland Island, the Itasca received strong and clear voice transmissions from Earhart, identifying as KHAQQ, which I don't know why that's her identifier, but she apparently was unable to hear voice transmissions from the ship. Signals from the ship would also be used for direction finding, implying that the aircraft's direction finder was also not functional. The first calls, routine reports stating that the weather was cloudy and overcast. So they were, like, the normal weather is cloudy and overcast. Where they actually, they got those in, but they, those aren't things that the boat really needed to respond to, so they didn't do anything about it. These calls were broken up by static, but at this point, the aircraft was still a long distance from Helen. Yeah. Another call was received stating that the aircraft was within 200 miles and requested that the ship use its direction finder to provide a bearing for the aircraft. Earhart began whistling into the microphone to provide a continual signal for them to hone in on. It was at this point that the radio operators on the Itasca realized that their RDF system could not tune into the aircraft's 3105 kilohertz frequency, and radioman Leo Bellaharts later commented that he was sitting there sweating blood because he couldn't do a darn thing about it. A similar call asking for a bearing was received again when Earhart estimated that they were about 100 miles out. So this was the radio log call. Earhart on says running out of gas only half hour left can't I think they meant can't hear us it's this is all like abbreviated too can't hear us at all we are we hear her and are sending on oh so this is them to the okay this is the Itasca radio log sorry says they're running out of gas half hour left can't hear us at all we hear her and are sending on 3105 500 same time consistently so basically the the from what I understand the kilohertz feed was wrong okay and like the receiver on Amelia's plane didn't match the, the feed that they were putting out. So, but they could receive her feed in, but there was no way that they could then talk back to her, essentially. <sighs> so they just had to, like, listen to her die. Another Itasca radio log uh, states, K-H-A-Q-Q, Earhart's plane. Itasca, we must be on you, but cannot see you, but gas is running low. Been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at a thousand feet. This is one of the last ones she said. Earhart's transmission said she couldn't hear the Itasca and asked them to send voice signals so she could try to take a radio bearing. The transmission was reported by the Itasca as the loudest possible signal, indicating that Earhart and Noonan were in the immediate area. They couldn't send voice at the frequency she asked for, so Morse code signals were sent instead. Earhart acknowledged receiving these, but said that she was unable to determine their direction. In the first attempt that she did, she had Frank Noonan on, who's on this flight as well, but she also had another guy on who was an expert in Morse code. For some reason, he wasn't on this second attempt. I don't know why. So, like, that first one, if that had happened, they would have been able to figure out what the fuck was going on, but it was just her and Noonan, and neither one of them knew how to do Morse code. Yikes. Yeah. In her last known transmission at Earhart... In her last known transmission, Earhart broadcasted... 
We are on the line 157, 337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 62, 110 kilocycles wait. However, a few minutes later, she went back on the frequency with a transmission that was logged as questionable. We are running on line north and south. Earhart's transmission seemed to indicate that she and Noonan believed that they had reached Howland's charted position, which was incorrect by about five nautical miles. The Itasca used her oil-fired boilers, so the boat basically like boosted up the generators so that um, they would create a the, they would create smoke for a period of time to like alert them to so their So what is she going to do? Land on the boat? Yeah, that's basically like what they're trying to do at this point is just like see where they are, figure something out because uh, she's running out of gas. The many scattered clouds in the area around Howland Island must have also been cited as a problem as their dark shadows on the ocean surfaced may have been almost indistinguishable from the island's subdued and very flat. So basically they like tried to make a smoke signal, but it was cloudy and the island's subdued and flat profile basically made them blend in. Whether any post-loss radio signals were received from Earhart and Noonan remains unclear. If transmissions were received from the Electra, most, if not all, were very weak and hopelessly garbled. Earhart's voice transmissions to Howland were on a 3105 kilohertz frequency restricted in the United States by the FCC to avian use, aviation use. This frequency was thought to be not fit for broadcasts over great distances. And when Earhart was at a cruising altitude and midway between Ley and Howland, neither station heard her scheduled transmission. Moreover, the 50-watt transmitter used by Earhart was attached to a less-than-optimum-length V-type antenna. So basically, like, all this shit. She also should have had a ton of other antennas and frequency things and whatever, but they took them out to make more room for gas. Oh. Yeah. So, like, there were mm, Ironic. Things. Yeah, there were multiple things that I was like, I have no idea what this even is. I'll just remember to say they took out a bunch of shit that could have been helpful to make sure oh, they had Oh, kind of like the Titanic. Yeah. The last voice transmission received on Howland Island from Earhart indicated that she and Noonan were flying along the line of position, some latitude and longitude shit, which Noonan would have calculated and drawn on a chart as passing through Howland. After all contact was lost with Howland Island, Attempts were made to reach the flyers with both voice and Morse code transmissions. Operators across the Pacific and the United States Army may have heard signals from the downed Electra, but they were unintelligible or weak. Some of these reports of transmissions were later determined to be hoaxes, but others were deemed authentic. Bearings taken by Pan American Airways stations suggest signals originating from several locations, including Gardner Island. It was noted at the time that if these signals were from Earhart and Noonan, they must have been on land with an aircraft since water would have otherwise shorted out the Electra's electrical system. Sporadic signals were reported for four or five days after the disappearance, but never yielded any understandable information. The captain of the USS Colorado later said there was no doubt many stations were calling the Earhart plane on the plane's frequency, some by voice and other by signals. All of these added to the confusion and doubtfulness of authenticity of reports. Beginning approximately one hour after Earhart's last recorded message, the Itasca undertook an ultimately unsuccessful search north and west of the Highland Island based on initial assumptions about transmissions from the aircraft, and over a period of about three days sent available resources to the search area within the vicinity of Howland Island. Later searches were directed over the Phoenix Islands, which are south of Howland. A week after the disappearance, a naval aircraft from, the, from Colorado flew over several islands in the group, including Gardner Island which had been uninhabited for over 40 years. The subsequent report on Gardner read, Here, signs of recent habitation were clearly visible, but repeated circling and zooming failed to elicit any answering wave from a possible inhabitant, and it was finally taken for granted that none were there. 
So basically, they could, like, see that there might be people on this island, and they, like, zoomed around uh, and made lots of noise, and because nobody, like, came out or waved, they just were like, oh, well, no one must be there. At the western end of the island, a tramp steamer, which I didn't look up, lay high and almost dry head onto the coral beach with her back broken in two places. The lagoon at Gardner looks sufficiently deep and dry, certainly large enough so that it seaplane or even an airboat could have landed or taken off in any direction with little if any so basically there was just like a fucking big piece of metal i think i don't know what a tramp steamer is i don't know how that's relevant but whatever it says given a chance it is believed that miss Earhart could have landed her aircraft in this lagoon and swum or waded to shore immediately after the end of the official search george putnam financed a private search by local authorities of nearby pacific islands and waters concentrating on the gilberts in late july 1937 putnam chartered Two small boats, and while he remained in the United States, directed a search of the Phoenix Islands, Christmas Island, Fanning Island, the Gilbert Islands, and the Marshall Islands, but no trace of Electra or its occupants were found. Back in the United States, Putnam acted to become the trustee of Earhart's estate so that he could pay for the searches and related bills. In probate court in Los Angeles, Putnam requested to have Amelia declared death in absentia. The seven-year waiting period waived so that he could manage Earhart's finances. As a result, Earhart was declared legally dead on January 5th, 1939. One of the main theories is that they landed elsewhere, but they were never found or they were killed by the people of the island or whatever. I know one. Let me see if you say it. Okay. Uh, The other theory is a crash instinct. Many people believe they ran out of fuel while searching for the island, crashed at sea, and perished. There's the Gardner Island hypothesis. Some believe that once they realized they couldn't find Howland Island, they simply searched for another place to land, specifically Gardner Island, now a part of the Phoenix Islands. A week after Earhart disappeared, Navy planes from the USS Colorado, which had sailed from Pearl Harbor, searched Gardner Island, and the planes saw signs of recent habitation and a wreck of the SS Norwich City, but did not see any signs of Earhart's plane or people. After the Navy ended its search, George Putnam undertook a search in the Phoenix Group and other islands, but nothing was found. Around April 1940, a skull was discovered, but British colonial officer Gerald Gallagher did not learn of it until September Gallagher did a more thorough search of the discovery area, including looking for artifacts such as rings or anything else that may have belonged to Amelia. The search found more bones, a bottle, a shoe, and a sextant box. On September 23, 1940, Gallagher radioed his superiors that he had found a skeleton, possibly that of a woman, along with an old-fashioned sextant box, under the tree on the island's southeast corner. Gallagher stated that the bones looked more than four years old to me, but there seems to be a slight chance that this may be the remains of Amelia Earhart. He was ordered to send the remains to Fiji. On April 4th, 1941, uh, Dr. D.W. Hoodless of the Central Medical School examined the bones, took measurements, and wrote a report. Using Carl Pearson's formulas for the stature of the links of the fibia, tibia, and humerus, Hoodless concluded that the person was about five feet, five and a half inches tall. Hoodless stated, it may be definitely stated that the skeleton is that of a male. Uh. Hoodless further stated, owing to the weather-beaten condition of all the bones, it's impossible to be dogmatic in regarding the age of the person at the time of death, but in the opinion that he was not less than 45 years of age, and that probably he was older, say between 45 and 55 years, but again, male. A 2018 study by American anthropologist Richard Yance reported, <laughs> this is his last name is J-A-N-T-Z, I don't know why I wanted to call it Yance. Uh, estimated the size of Earhart's skeleton based on photographs and reanalyzed the earlier data used in modern forensic techniques. Based on measurements of 2,700 Americans who died in the mid-20th century, the study concluded that Earhart's bone measurements more closely matched the the Gardner Island bones than 90% of the reference sample. However, others criticized the study for 
being based on little factual evidence, in particular seven measurements from the skeleton were done in 1941 combined with estimates about Earhart's size based on photos and doubted the accuracy of these measurements. The other theory is called the Japanese capture theory. Another theory is that Earhart and Noonan were captured by Japanese forces, perhaps after somehow navigating somewhere within the Japanese South Pacific Mandate. In 1990, the NBC TV series Unsolved Mysteries broadcast an interview with no, a Siamese woman who claimed to have witnessed Earhart and Noonan's execution by Japanese soldiers. No independent confirmation has ever emerged from any of these claims, and various purported photographs of Earhart during her captivity have been identified as either fraudulent or having been taken before her final flight. Uh, Almost done. Uh, myths, legends, and claims. So these aren't. These are more conspiracy theories, but less of like places or whatever. Unresolved circumstances of Earhart's disappearance, along with her fame, attracted a great body of other claims relating to her last flight. Several unsupported theories have become known in popular culture. One is that they were spies for FDR. The World War II era movie Flight for Freedom is a story of a fictional female aviator, obviously inspired by Earhart, who engages in a spying mission in the Pacific. The movie helped further admit that Earhart was spying on the Japanese in the Pacific at the request of FDR, at the request of the FDR administration. By 1949, both the United States and the U.S. Army intelligence had concluded that this rumor was groundless. Jackie Cochran, another pioneering aviator and one of Earhart's friends, made a post-war search of numerous files in Japan and was convinced that the Japanese were not involved in Earhart's disappearance. The last theory is that she assumed another identity. So in November 2006, the National Geographic Channel aired episode two of Undiscovered History series about a claim that Earhart survived the world flight, moved to New Jersey, changed her name, remarried, and became Irene Craig Milbolum. Wow. <laughs> the claim had originally been raised in the book Amelia Earhart Lives in 1970 by author Joe Kloss, based on the research of Major Joseph Gervais. Irene Bolum, who has been a banker in New York since the 1940s, denied being Earhart, filed a lawsuit requesting $1.5 in damages and submitted a lengthy affidavit in which she rebutted the claims. The book's publisher, McGraw-Hill, withdrew the book from the market shortly after it was released, and court records indicate that the company reached an out-of-court settlement with her. Subsequently, Bolum's personal life history was thoroughly documented by researchers, eliminating any possibility that she was Earhart. Kevin Richland, a professional criminal forensic expert hired by National Geographic also studied photos of both women and cited many measurable face differences between Earhart and Bolum. Isn't that so funny for people to just be like, you're not, you're right. Amelia Earhart. Right. Like, no, I'm not. Like, yes, you are. There's all, yes, we're going to write a book. Imagine that happening and you're being, you're just sitting there and you're like, like, I'm, I'm not. I'm a though. fucking banker. Like, like I literally, you guys, I'm, my name is Irene. <laughs> Bolum. Wait, so are we just not going to talk about the Bermuda Triangle? It wasn't listed as one of the theories on the website that I read. Okay, It was like what? a whole article about her and they didn't list it. So I, I mean, you, you could, isn't you, that, do you like that theory the best? Yeah, I, I, isn't that the theory? It's one that I've heard. I've never heard a specific one being the theory. Oh my god, that's, when I think of Amelia Earhart, I think of the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. And that, I mean, that's the end of the story, so it's open to interpretation. I'm interpretation, intrepidation, and interpretation. The history of disappearing flights from Amelia Earhart to the, to the Bermuda Triangle and more. Yeah, I know there's a lot of missing planes in the Bermuda Triangle. Isn't that just the jam? Yeah. That, like, she also is one of them? Yeah. We can, I mean, there are pictures of her, like, flight route. route. I, don't, I didn't actually look to see if it went over the Bermuda Triangle. I'm sure it does. 
No, I just thought that was the most popular theory, but is that, I don't like that, what? When you think, okay, listeners, when you think of Amelia Earhart, do you think of the Bermuda Triangle? It's Bermuda. 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 Do you think of the Bermuda Triangle? <laughs> the Bermuda Rectangle. It wasn't a popular one when I... Wasn't one that came up when you were researching? It really wasn't. What? All of these, uh, these other ones came up. Did you just read one article? I read this and Wikipedia. Okay. I don't remember my sources. What are you going to tell me about? All right. Born in Chicago on August 26, 1982, Mulaney knew he wanted to be in showbiz at the age of five. How? Ricky Ricardo. He... Okay. <laughs> he had a chance to audition for Kevin oh, in Home Alone John when he Mulaney. was seven. Yeah, I was going to get there. No, sorry. I thought his name was Mulaney. Um, like, that was his first name. And I was like, what the fuck? Got it. John sorry, Mulaney. so, so sorry. Heavily influenced by Ricky Ricardo. Oh, that is... I am already in. Yeah. Uh, he had the chance to audition for Kevin in Home Alone, but his parents said no. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. fucked. Uh, growing up, he had a drinking problem. Okay. Um, I'm reflecting upon this, um, because I've seen his specials. He just got drunk a lot. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that what happens when you have a drinking problem? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and also, my favorite John Mulaney story, What's New Pussycat? I'm not sure if I remember that one. So, I've only seen, uh, one of his first did Netflix I specials. Not break, did we not use What's New Pussycat as a, ver- as a verb? I like to change things into verbs. How do you change what three would, words into a verb? I'm gonna what's new pussycat you. Oh, John Mulaney! Yeah, you did. I did. Was that recorded? Uh, I don't know. Uh, anyway, so yeah. I don't know what it was in reference to, but you did. When he does his stand-up specials, he talks a lot about his childhood and his parents were lawyers mm-hmm. and his dad. He could never like fully argue with his dad because his dad would be a lawyer to him. Can't think of any examples. Uh, his they went to college with Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. and then in his one of his parents did. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then in one of his specials, John Mulaney said how excited his mom was to go to like the reunion or something where that yeah. Bill Clinton was going to be doing. Yeah. And the dad was like, "He's not going to remember you." And then he remembered. Yes. And then no, he that's remembered. That's a great show, or that's a great story. I I do remember that story. That's not yeah. the Pussycat story. No, that's okay, just from his childhood. Say, wait, what? The What's New Pussycat story is from his childhood, where him and his friend go to a diner, okay. and they play What's New Pussycat over and over and over and over again on the jukebox, <laughs> and then so they, they slip in one other, what other song did they slip in? When we were first up at the jukebox, and we were punching in the What's New Pussycats, right? <laughs> I punched in about seven, and then John says to me, hey, 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 wait. Before we drop in another What's New Pussycat, <laughs> let's put in one It's Not Unusual. And that is when the afternoon went from good to great. <laughs> After seven What's New Pussycats in a row. Suddenly, dum 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 now you get it. Yeah. I mean, we can cut it out if we need to, but that was funny and I liked it. Do we have the rights to John Mulaney? No, probably not. So I'll have to maybe cut that out. It was, it's not unusual. It's sandwiched not unusual in between to me. a bunch of 
What's new, Pussy Cat? So yeah, basically he was a little shit. Uh, and then in, he grew up super Catholic, and he was an altar boy. And I, I don't know, I, I didn't research his childhood much. I just I'm coming up with stuff from his specials. <laughs> so he graduated from Georgetown in 2004. Cool. He was hired as an office assistant at Comedy Central, and after a year, he pitched the idea for a parody of I Love the 80s called I Love the 30s, which he developed with, along with fellow comedian Nick Kroll. Oh. So, Foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> And John Laney is uh, he's a stand-up comedian. Uh, what? Well, other people I, might I not know. What? I thought he was a banjo player. Oi! Is that not the little boy from the folk band? Oi! <laughs> Fuck that. I don't know. Anyway. Okay, Cassandra Comedian. Come in. I thought you said Cassandra. Cassandra um, Medium. He proved... <laughs> that would be my drag name. Cassandra Medium. <laughs> Cassandra Medium. Like... Stand up, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> okay. He performed in Bonnaroo or at bon the Bonnaroo Music Festival in 2008. Cool. He worked as a commentator for Best Week Ever. In August 2008, he auditioned for Saturday Night Live along with Nick Kroll and T.J. Miller. He got the spot, obviously, on the writing team. And in 2009, he uh, released a stand-up comedy album titled "The po The Top Part" in 2009. So he wrote for SNL for six seasons, and he occasionally appeared on the show's Weekend Update segment, and he is the creator of Stefan, him and Bill Hader. Yes! Stefan. Yes. Um, it had everything. Small people on roller coasters, tiny ants in a bag, <laughs> something else and weird. MTV's Dan Cortez. <laughs> MTV's Dan Cortez. So I remember watching an interview with Bill Hader and they said that character was partially, like the appearance was partially based off of the same Starbucks employee that Bill Hader would always get his coffee from. <laughs> it was like a teen, like a very, uh, apathetic teenager. Yeah. And then mixed with club promoters. Yes. So Stefan is a very funny character. In New York's hottest club is... is what? <laughs> Stefan is literally like my favorite Weekend Update character. Same. I fucking love Bill Hader. He's my same. favorite SNL Same, same, guy. same. I love him in Trainwreck. I didn't think I would love him in a romantic lead, and I do. Bill Hader surprisingly captivates as a romantic lead. Also LeBron James. A great yeah. actor of our generation. The LeBron. The LeBron. <laughs> the LeBron. He was nominated for the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing for a Variety Series with the SNL writing staff from 2009 to 2012. He won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Original Music and Lyrics at the 63rd Primetime Emmy Awards with Justin Timberlake, Seth Meyers, and Catrice Barnes. I think he wrote Dick in a Box. I was going to say, but what about Adam Samberg? Andy Samberg? Yep, Adam. Mm, <laughs> I got him mixed up with Seth Meyers, not same guy. Well, it could have been a different digital short. I mean, if Justin Timberlake's involved. Well, you know, let's. I'm gonna click on it, and we're a gonna. Gag. We're give gonna it a, just give her a click. Oh, was it? Did he write the? I bet he read, wrote the monologue for Justin Timberlake's intro. I can't believe I'm hosting. I it bet said it was Jason Segel. Maybe he was involved. It only said John Mulaney, on that one. Anyway, he won a fucking Emmy. Cool. Um, I don't have an Emmy. Neither. So some of the places that he's performed were Live at Gotham, Conan, Jimmy Kimmel Live, Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, Late Night with Conan O'Brien, and Comedy Central Presents. His stand-up special called New in Town came out in 2012. I think that's the one that I've seen. 
following his tenure at Saturday Night Live, Mulaney contributed writing to other shows such as Maya and Marty, Documentary Now, Oh Hello on Broadway, and the Comedy Central roast of James Franco. He also acted in supporting roles on television shows such as Crashing, Portlandia, and Difficult People. <gasps> wait, Crashing, like the British one? U.S. Oh, wait, I think that's the one about the comedian. He's trying to make it as a comedian, and the show is called Crashing because it's not working well. In May 2013, NBC... So, okay. John Mulaney had his own TV show mm -hmm. called Mulaney, and in May 2013, NBC passed on picking up Mulaney's semi-autobiographical sitcom pilot titled Mulaney. In June 2013, Fox Broadcasting Company ordered a new script while considering whether to order the production of several episodes. In October 2013, Fox announced that they picked up the show for a six-episode season order. Mulaney was the creator, producer, and writer of this series until its cancellation in May 2015. The series received poor reviews, mm -hmm. including Playwright and the New York Times TV critic Neil Genz Genslingers, who wrote, It rips off Seinfeld so aggressively that in episode two it even makes fun of its own plagiarism, but one thing it forgot to borrow from Seinfeld was intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yikes! Yeah, I knew I had only heard reviews that were bad. Yeah, I, that's probably why I didn't. I, I didn't watch I'd it. I'd like to see it. I know. Just I want to know. I literally heard that it was like a ripoff of Seinfeld, and I was like, "Well, I fucking hate Seinfeld, so that seems terrible." And I, I also didn't know John Mulaney at that point. Yeah, he what, he hadn't gifted us yes with yet with his talents. He hadn't. So he married his wife Anna Marie Tendler, a makeup artist and lampshade art artisan. I'm sorry. Yep. That's it, a job? Yeah, of That'd course. That'd be a lampshade art artisan. Artisan? Etsy? I don't know. Uh, this was on July 5th, 2014. Wikipedia says absolutely nothing about their relationship. The only thing that I know that is that she's Jewish and sh she met John Mulaney through Nick Kroll. He's obsessed with her. He's like deeply, deeply in love with her. I know, and I love it. Weird that they didn't mention his like obsession with his wife. <laughs> they have a very cool relationship. I love them. Um, so Mulaney's third stand-up comedy special titled The Comeback Kid was released November 13th, 2015 on Netflix. The Comeback Kid received critical acclaim with David Sims of The Atlantic calling it a reminder of everything that makes Mulaney so singular. Storytelling rich with well-observed details delivered with the confidence of someone decades older than 33. In 2016, Mulaney received a nomination for the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing for a Variety Special for The Comeback Kid, losing to Patton Oswalt's Talking for Clapping. And that was the one that Patton did right after his wife died, so it's like, you know. Uh, Mulaney regularly performs as George St. Geegland, an elderly man from the Upper West Side of New York. This is it. This is the old fucker. St. Okay. Geegland and fellow New Yorker Gil Faison, portrayed by Georgetown classmate and comedian Nick Kroll. Host a prank show called Too Much Tuna, in which contestants are given sandwiches with too much tuna fish. Mulaney has toured the United States alongside Kroll in a show called Oh Hello, with both in character as George St. Geeland and Gil Faison, respectively. The show premiered on Broadway on September 23rd, 2016, and concluded its run on January 22nd, 2017. The Broadway production was filmed and released on Netflix on June 13th, 2017. Steve Martin was the celebrity special guest with a bonus clip showing Michael J. Fox as the guest. Matthew Broderick appeared as himself in a brief cameo towards the end of the special. When that segment was on the Kroll show, because that's where it started, mm -hmm. um, 
Lucia and I, we had uh, the longest run of sneaking packets of tuna in each other's stuff and waiting for the other to notice. <laughs> so one time she stuck one in my backpack my like senior year of college or something. I didn't find it for a couple of days, and I put one under her pillowcase that she didn't find for a couple of days. That was a cool gag. Wow. Uh, I love an inspired gag. Yeah. It was too much tuna. Mulaney's fourth stand-up comedy tour, Kid Gorgeous, kicked off its first leg in May 2017, concluding in July of that year. A second leg began in September 2017 in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and concluded April 2018 in Jacksonville, Florida. The tour featured seven shows at Radio City Music Hall in New York City in February 2018, one of which was filmed for another Netflix special. Kid Gorgeous was met with critical acclaim, with Steve Green of IndieWire calling it one of the year's best pieces of writing. At the 70th Primetime Emmy Awards, Mulaney received an Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Variety Special for Kid Gorgeous. So he's like three Emmys. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. He did a lot of behind-the-scenes work that I didn't realize. Yeah. I had no idea he was on SNL for that long. Or Me writing either. Or SNL for that long. Uh, well, funny you should mention. Oh, my God. So Mulaney returned to host Saturday Night Live on April 14th, 2018, making him the third SNL writer after Conan O'Brien and Larry David to host SNL, Ooh. despite never being promoted to a cast member. Good names to be amongst yeah. Larry David and Conan. He currently provides the voice of a lead character on the animated Netflix series Big Mouth. All alongside I think about yep. while we were listening to his stand-up, I was like, I can't see his face, so all I hear is Big Mouth. Yep, um, alongside his writing partner Nick Kroll, who co-created the show. In 2018, Mulaney provided the voice of Spider-Ham in the Spider-Man Into the, Uni- Into the Spider-Verse animated film. I have not seen that. Everyone says it's amazing. See, yeah, I just don't... I don't... I don't have a desire. I don't either. Everyone says it's so good. Yeah. Is that the end? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Because that's what it's up to. I mean, yeah, that is the most recent thing. I oh, haven't seen... I was going to read some of his jokes, but oh, okay. keep going. I haven't seen his most recent... Uh, I haven't seen Kid Gorgeous on Netflix. I think I've only seen the one in the middle. The... It's got the, pop, the top part, Comeback Kid, New in Town... I think I've seen New in Town. New in Town is the one with the gay homeless man. Maybe I haven't <laughs> seen New in Town. I've seen the one where he tells the joke about one black coffee. Oh, the McDonald's thing? Yes. And orders, yeah. That's um, one of my favorite jokes. My dog Petunia is my best friend in the world. I give her a million kisses a day. She does not like me and barks at me and bites me all day long. We've all gone too big too fast and run out of room. We've all made a happy birthday sign. You get that poster board up and you're like, I don't need to trace it. I know how big letters should be to begin with a big ass H. Meeting parents is a thing I've never understood. I've never been with my girlfriend and thought, aw babe, tonight is going great. But do you know what would make it perfect? Charles and Ellen Mulaney. Charles and Ellen. I just think it's funny how growing up he was such a problem child and now he's afraid to do anything. Like now he can't even talk to people at the bank. Yeah. Or like the the one thing that he does when he goes to Best Buy and he (laughs) said, I wish, when the worker asked if he had a Best Buy credit card. His wife just walked away and was like, fucking A, and, oh like, God. didn't want to deal with it. Goodbye. So he was like, I wish. do you want to sign up for one? And he was like, yeah, and, oh like, signed God. up for a card. Or, no, I don't think he did. I think he was like, I don't have any time or something, like. I must go. <laughs> Is all of it on Netflix? I think so. Cool. Yes. Go search John Mulaney on Netflix if you haven't already. And he's great. We like him. Or just, like, Google him. He's funny. He's, like, fun to listen to speak to. Uh, <laughs> no, damn it. He's fun to hear talk. 
He's fun to listen to speak to. <laughs> I'm not it's even lovely drunk. lovely to have great friends. It's lovely to have great friends. I'm not even drunk. Uh, yeah, I love John Mulaney. I love Amelia Earhart. And this <laughs> has been... Hmm. Is that a new title <laughs> of our podcast? It's not, uh, it's mmm, mm. meaty. <laughs> so meaty. So meaty. We, so are also not, we are also not Joel McHale. Um, okay. Or sponsor. Okay, follow us on all of our social media. Tell us more podcasts. That's where you get all the updates. And Marissa posts cool pictures that go along with our stories each week. So... Thank you. Rate and subscribe. Leave a nice comment. Email us. Leave uh, a bad comment. No, I'm just no I don't want to ask for no, that. Don't. Uh, thank you. Okay, bye. bye.